When we talk about divides between progressives and conservatives, the thing that most often comes to mind, at least for Americans, is a debate about the size and scope of the federal government. This, after all, is the ideological ground on which most recent debates between progressivism and conservatism have been fought. But today, I want to argue that there's an even more profound debate that divides conservatives and what we might call progressives, or those with a more progressive orientation at least, not just in the United States, but also historically and to a certain extent throughout the world. That underlying debate comes back to a fundamental issue. Who and what are we as human beings? What, in other words, is our human nature? Sounds like a philosophical question, but as we'll discuss, when it comes to policies, the differences can be profound. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And welcome again, podcast listeners, to another exciting episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am Dr. A.J. Nolte, professor of government at the Robertson School of Government at Regent University. Once again, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of either Regent University or the Robertson School. So today I'm recording the first of what will, I hope will be a series of episodes where we kind of step back from the policy issues that are ongoing. We are going to have a couple of discussions that are a little bit more focused on, on policy things, but because we kind of have this quarantine moment, I want to spend a little bit of time for us to go back to first principles, to go back to kind of the debates and the discussions and the things that, that often lie behind the policy arguments that we have. And I think one of the most fundamental of those is the question of human nature. Who are we as human beings? And what is most basic, what is most intrinsic to us as human beings? Now, this may sound like something that is, in fact, not really all that policy relevant. It sounds very philosophical, very sort of 10,000 foot, and not very practical. But I think the practical elements of this are profound. So, for example, when we start talking about education, are there certain things that you cannot educate out of a person? Or, with sufficient educating and training, can you completely modify their behavior away from their pre-existing tendencies? That actually becomes a very important issue because as we start talking about issues involving the way we talk about other people, issues involving the way we educate, issues involving, for example, ideologies that come out of various different elite colleges and universities and so forth, to what extent is humanity malleable? To what extent can you simply educate someone out of certain tendencies? Let's be a little bit more specific and talk about specifically men. Now, I feel like I can do this. Uh, I am a man, and in our highly identitarian age, sometimes we will say that those who are not from one perspective can't really understand another. And so there's this big debate about men that's going on in light of the Me Too movement. And I think it really becomes relevant when you start talking about human nature. How much of male behavior, particularly the idea that male males tend to be a little bit more aggressive, males tend to be maybe a little bit more inclined to non-monogamous sexual behavior. And when you combine those two things, you can see there might be a problem, right? So to what extent can that behavior actually be eliminated through education? Or is it something that simply needs to be channeled, needs to be sort of controlled in, in certain ways without necessarily expecting that it's ever going to go away? You know, other things that we can talk about are 
the natural t- human tendency to discriminate. Left to themselves, it seems like people will have a tendency to draw boundaries, create one group that is us and another group that is not us. How much of this is natural? How much of this can be taken away through simply education so that everybody is seeing everyone they meet as part of the same group? So these questions ultimately come back to the idea of human nature. In other words, how much of social behavior is inherent and inherited and unchangeable? And how much of it can in fact be changed through education, through environment, and so forth? Really, there's no clear-cut answer to this, but what we can see if we start to drill down into the issue is that generally conservative and generally progressive movements, politicians, etc., come to very, very different answers on this question. So I want to look at this through three lenses, the conservative lens, the progressive lens, and then finally the Christian lens, which as we'll see is a little bit different from both of the other two. So let's start with the conservative lens, small c conservative lens on human nature. Well, as you might imagine, conservatives are very skeptical that anything about human nature can really ultimately be changed. Okay, the conservative tendency is to believe that nature is given, that it is not something that's sort of created by all of these different social factors that that it exists, and that it's very, very hard to change. That in fact, there is something hardwired in us that accounts for almost every aspect of human behavior, and that changing those behaviors is very difficult, if not impossible. So when conservatives are looking at governance, they're basically saying, look, humanity is what humanity is. Uh, And they tend to have a very pessimistic view of human nature, that most human beings will not tend to be capable of self-government if left to themselves. And so conservatism tends to emphasize a politics of limits. In other words, this is part of the reason why conservatives will say, look, if you've got a system, a social order, a political unit, whatever, that works really well, that is successful at sort of constraining the worst impulses of human nature, you should probably leave it alone. Because if it's working, and then you change it, it might not work. So human nature is something that could spring out of control at any given time. And that is kind of the the underlying conservative viewpoint, is that human nature is this thing that is given, it's immutable, it's unchangeable, and there's a lot to it. It's very thick. All right, so most of the behaviors and tendencies that we see in human beings are really come from, from an innate human nature. And so conservatives will look at everything from politics to economics to society to civilization to tradition as essentially means to channel and control those worst human impulses, right? So they will look at tradition as a well-established system that is efficient at limiting, to the greatest extent possible, human nature, right? So there's an inherent pessimism about what can be achieved by government, about what can be achieved by education in terms of really getting rid of or changing this human nature. Now, If we were to take a more progressive perspective, and this is true not just in the United States in the the 20th and 21st century, but I would say it's a sort of a general uh, tendency of of revolutionaries and progressives, they look at things in a very different sense. They see most of human nature as either completely malleable or generally good. Okay, so they start with the assumption that either humans are a blank slate or that the natural human tendency is toward goodness. And they will look at all the bad things that do that people do, the bad aspects of human behavior, as things that are created by the constraints of society. So society, civilization, tradition, all of those things, from this perspective, are constructed to keep the powerful in power and to keep the powerless oppressed. And so when we see behaviors that are bad, they are actually conditioned by this society and conditioned by tradition and so forth. 
And so they will see that there's almost nothing to human nature. And if there is, it's sort of a general good. I would say this comes largely from the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who conceived of a basically benevolent, compassionate individual human who really only starts to engage in bad behavior when, as he puts it, the first fence was put up establishing private property, right? So civilization for Rousseau is something that causes most of the ills of society. And you see this reflected also in Marx, who believes in sort of a primitive communism that he basically yoinks straight out of Rousseau, but he believes that it's malleable, right? He believes that all of these behaviors and inherited things are sort of constructed by society and by tradition, okay? And so human societies are malleable. There's a couple of different tendencies here. Number one, often you get sort of this idea that primitive societies are better. People hold all things in common, and uh, there's an, uh, they're more sort of naturally egalitarian, and that's good. And then also, they will say that you, if you essentially just redistribute power and open things up and, and give the, the have, more power to the have-nots and take it away from the haves, that this will naturally result in a diminishing of those bad things because in the progressive account of reality, most of the bad things come from these, these power imbalances and these, these structural issues, right? So they're not seeing a lot of negative in human nature. So you can see how this might lead to very, very different policy outcomes. Progressives are always going to be more comfortable with the idea that you can change human nature and it's not going to have these sort of negative effects because they see human nature as something that's basically malleable. They see human nature as something that can be changed and they are, as a result of that, more optimistic about the idea of radical social change, of you know overturning these traditions, which to them are just sort of reinforcing negative structures of power and replacing them with new, more egalitarian, more just, more equitable traditions, and in their view, this will eliminate most of the bad things that exist in society. Conservatives are, are completely the opposite, right? If everything is bad, it's human nature, and if civilization is literally sort of the, the good, the only good that is standing on this thin line between the inner barbarian and every other inner barbarian out there, and it's just these civilized norms that we have, you start changing things like that because you think that these are the things that are actually creating the power structures, then you're potentially, you know, unleashing all kinds of dangerous forces, right? So when we start talking about social change, it is important to keep this difference in mind, that there is a fundamental disagreement about humanity and human nature, such that the force that the progressive sees as the thing that is causing all of the bad is the force the conservative sees as preventing all of the bad. And usually that comes down to a debate over tradition, right? So let's take, for example, the traditional family. Progressives, particularly after the sexual revolution, have seen the traditional family as a force that is patriarchal, that is oppressive to women, that is sort of keeping women and, and children and various different sexual minorities down, etc., etc. Conservatives will say, look, no, if you didn't have the family, if you didn't have these, these structures, then you would have men, first of all, be completely unleashed. The inner nature of man would be completely unleashed, uh, unleashed and they see male behavior as something that's very difficult to control absent these sort of robust social forces. And so, you know, their belief would also be that these traditions have, have evolved precisely to protect women, children, the most vulnerable, etc. And so this is a fundamental difference on what ends up being a key issue, a key building block of society. And so you can see how a lot of the debates that would come up in the, uh, you know, sort of conservative progressive disputes really come back to this issue. So another one is government, right? 
progressives would see government as tend to be tending to be run by the people who are the most educated, and they see education as most likely to free you from the prejudices that make you do bad things, right? So if we can just free everybody from these prejudices, their inner positive good human nature comes out, and so they see government is actually a good thing because it's these these people who know what they're talking about, they're experts, they've been freed from prejudice, and they can make decisions for the less educated and hopefully bring them up to that educated, enlightened state. Conservatives are looking at government and they're saying, look, you can put all the education over it you want, but scratch the person hard enough and underneath all of that veneer, there is still a person who wants power. They want power for themselves, they want power for those like them, part of their tribe, and conservatives are going to look at that and say, look, you're just putting more power into the hands of people who have, through their education, fooled you into thinking that they are benevolent and altruistic, when in reality, they are subject to the same rotten tendencies in human nature that exist in all of us. Okay, so that, I would say, underlines a pretty substantial and important difference between progressive and conservative thinking. But there are a couple of other sort of dimensions of this that I want to explore before we start getting into the Christian view. First of all, let me talk about libertarians. Where do libertarians come down on human nature? I would say for libertarians, there there's a wider spectrum of belief on this, and a lot of it really comes down to the type of libertarian that you're talking about. So most libertarians start from the principle that the state is organized violence, which, by the way, is probably accurate. To, to a certain extent. Certainly conservatives would agree with them on that point. But some libertarians will then say that if you simply get rid of that state, if you get rid of that organized violence, that people will more or less behave in altruistic manner, manner not necessarily because they're altruistic themselves, but be- because behaving in altruistic manner is in their rational self-interest. So libertarians have kind of a mixed view on human nature. They certainly would be leery of any concentration of power. However, they do seem to have a very substantial faith in the ability of individual human beings to pursue their rational self-interest without prejudice and without all these other things. And so, you know, generally speaking, you're more utopian libertarian. You're going to share actually the progressive view of human nature. They just have a different outcome of how you get to the sort of utopian state. You also see some libertarians that I would say take a little bit of a different tack. They would say, look, we agree with the conservatives about human nature. This is why you need a state that's small as possible. And their argument would essentially be that there's greater harm done by the concentration in, in, uh, of power in the hands of the state than can be done if government is kept really, really weak, really, really decentralized. It decreases the amount of harm that can be done by concentrations of power. So you probably will get some libertarians that are more taking that conservative view of human nature. Now, another question that might naturally arise is, what does social science say about the idea of human nature? And this is a fascinating topic, because I would say the social scientific consensus on this issue is changing, and changing very quickly. So, as Steven Pinker documents in his book, The Blank Slate, historically, social scientists have taken a more progressive or Rousseauistic notion of human nature and have seen human nature as sort of a a blank slate. And they've looked at education, they've looked at culture, they've looked at language, all these different things as sort of imposing a superstructure on a completely malleable human individual. More recently, however, as Pinker points out, and Pinker, by the way, is not really a conservative, I would say, in, in that classical sense, although he's got some views that head in that direction in an interesting way, more recently, you have sort of seen the notion that there is actually something to human nature. 
there are what Pinker calls human universals. Some of the anthropological research that indicated these perfectly harmonious societies with, with sexual freedom and promiscuity and stuff like that, that that you saw from early anthropologists like Margaret Mead, turns out that the anthropologists were being hoodwinked by local people who were either having a joke on them or telling them what they thought the strange foreign people wanted to hear, which is actually, I wouldn't say is quite a human universal, but is very, very common. In a lot of cultures, it is rude to tell someone something that they don't want to hear, so a lot of cultures won't do that. Of course, if you come from a more Western culture that, that has sort of a bias toward truth and honesty and you know, telling people uncomfortable truths is, is seen as acceptable behavior, you might not pick up on that. So in some ways, they weren't being necessarily aware of the cultural currents from which they themselves came. And so it does seem to be the increasingly a consensus that there are some elements of human nature that are inherent, that cannot be simply changed or wished away or educated away that are sort of natural, intuitive, instinctive reactions. Jonathan Haidt has done a lot of work on this, and he talks about what he calls the rider in the elephant, that human reason is the rider, and that sort of the emotional substructure is is the elephant, and the rider may think that he's in control of the elephant, but really the rider's got no way of actually making the elephant go anywhere the elephant doesn't already want to go. So what are some of these human universals? One is groupishness, as Jonathan Haidt calls it, the idea of groupishness, that we are naturally tend to group together, and that we in fact get some chemical benefits in our brains from doing things together as groups. We might call this natural tendency tribalism. Along with this groupishness comes an equally natural tendency to exclude those who are outside of our group, however that group is defined. So the tendency to define a group based on certain characteristics and then exclude those who do not share those characteristics is in fact inherent to human nature. This is something that social scientists, psychologists, evolutionary psychologists, and even some fairly brave anthropologists who are willing to push back against the dogma of cultural relativism that was brought into their discipline by people like Margaret Mead have started to discover. So we are now seeing a real sense in which our natural tendency as humans is toward tribalism, to be part of a tribe, these small, closely knit, coherent groups. And in particular, small, closely knit, coherent groups that share common characteristics. That seems to be a natural human instinct, and a natural human instinct that doesn't really change. Gender differentiation is also a human universal. Now, I want to be clear what, what we mean by this. This doesn't mean that there aren't some cultures, very, very rare, very, very few cultures, where the boundaries between the genders are more permeable, right? There are specific circumstances in which members of one gender will sort of play a role that is more traditional for the other. And there are a number of reasons why that might be the case in, in specific circumstances. But it, as a general rule, sexual differentiation, right? So differentiation on the basis of biological sex is pretty common. It's, it's, it is a human universal in any society that you can look at. Even societies that have a more egalitarian distribution of power between men and women, there are still clear differentiations of role, differentiations of pattern of life and, and so forth. And so all of those things do appear to be human universals. A lot of bad things are also human universals. Things like, for example, there, there is a natural tendency in most primitive tribal societies to consider women that are outside of your group to be sexually available. There is a natural tendency toward violence toward those outside of the group. 
violent competition for resources is is part of it, but even just you know general violence where there's no necessarily resource at stake is something that we see in a lot of primitive societies. So there's a natural altruism toward those in the group and a natural hostility toward those outside of the group. And that, I would say, cuts against what Rousseau says. So Rousseau has this idea that individuals are just sort of free-floating and have a sort of sense of benevolence toward their fellows. In reality, what we probably find looks a lot more like primitive tribalism. People are gathered together in small hunter-gatherer bands. They're egalitarian and altruistic to a certain extent within the band, but they are hostile to anybody from outside until that person has sort of become a member of the tribe. Uh, and usually there, are, usually there are sort of rituals that demark those groups and you, you go through some sort of ritual process of becoming a member of the group, right? That is something that we see almost universally in human societies and that seems to be also something that is just sort of natural to humanity. Now, what that doesn't mean is that some of those aspects of human nature cannot be overcome. So here's where we come to the Christian perspective on human nature, which I would say is a little of column A and a little from column B. The conservative perspective on human nature does not require, I would say, any kind of Christian DNA. It doesn't really take all that much to say human nature is what it is and can't be changed. You just have to basically not have a PhD in certain types of social science and or you have to not have been educated into the idea that human nature doesn't exist. Most people, I think, start with a default assumption that it does and that there are constraints on it. But, you know, that's not to say that most people are, I think more, more people are naturally small c conservative than are naturally sort of progressive or, or revolutionary radical type from a political perspective. However, a lot of those people who are natural small c conservatives will side with people that are more progressive because people that are naturally more progressive want to empower groups of which those people are a part. So someone who is, you know, poor, but you know, tends toward a, a small c conservative outlook on life is going to be much more likely, in fact, when it comes to politics, to vote with somebody whose who's progressive worldview they don't share if that person is promising to make their lives better. So, you know, there, there's this isn't necessarily to say that the fact that most people don't share this worldview of nature means that if you're someone who supports progressive politics, you're pretty much doomed because, in fact, you get a lot of support from people who don't share that worldview but who do see the program that a progressive or revolutionary movement is advancing as beneficial to them and to, to people in their class, their group, etc. So from a Christian perspective, you don't need Christianity to have any kind of pessimism about human nature. You do, I think, need something like Christianity as a precursor to have any sort of optimism about human nature particularly before the advent of modern social science. And so the, prog- the idea of progress, the idea that human nature can become better, is in some ways an idea that comes from Judeo-Christianity. You see it to a certain extent in Judaism, you see it a lot more in Christianity. But there's a caveat, and the caveat in Christianity is that, the, that there's a balance. Christian anth- anthropology starts with the idea that human beings are both made in the image of God, and that this image of God is damaged, severely damaged by sin. Some sources, some, some Christian traditions will say broken, some will say impaired, whichever way you want to look at it, that it, there, there's a corruption that comes from sin that does not allow human beings to fulfill that thing for which they were made, which is to be made, to be image bearers of God, to bear the image of God, to be conformed more and more to that. And so that's this natural, natural tension in Christian anthropology between the idea of human beings made in the image of God 
and the pervasive impact of sin. What does this mean for Christians? It means that Christians are both pessimistic about the actual state of human nature and optimistic about the possibility that human nature can be redeemed. So there's an element of hope, but there's also an element of pessimism. And so you get Christians really kind of ending up politically across the spectrum on this. Some some tend to side more with the pessimism of the conservatives, some more with the optimism of the progressives. But really, ultimately, Christianity has a balanced view. Some aspects of human nature can change, can be transformed by Christ. And there's also the idea of what's called sort of general revelation or common grace or sometimes natural law, which serves as a guide for the conscience. And so human conscience can sometimes lead even those who are caught up in sin to do the right thing for conscientious reasons. However, it's imperfect. It's never going to get you all the way there. And so there are limits on how perfectible society can be from a Christian understanding, at least until the end of time. And so I would say Christianity has sort of a nuanced position that's that's neither really the conservative pessimism nor the progressive optimism. You could call it sort of an optimistic realism. You could call it hopeful pessimism. I don't know, but it's, it's sort of somewhere in the middle. Because you have that tension, you have that dual anthropology. And so, you know, where, where is that in comparison with the social scientific take? I would say, actually, this is an area where Christians and social scientists are, actually, are, are coming closer to one another. Social scientists want to say that human nature can be overcome. Christians will say yes in certain cases. Christians want to say, but human nature exists, and there's some bad things about it that are fairly unchangeable, that are fairly difficult, or if not impossible, to change. And increasingly, social scientists seem to be in agreement with that sentiment. So, what does this mean from a policy perspective? First of all, I think it means that we ought to be cautious about the idea that any immediate radical change in traditions, in society, anything like that is going to have a beneficial impact. Because I think what we find is that radical, dramatic, revolutionary change tends to bring out that human nature. When you suddenly yank the rug out from under somebody in in some significant way, the negative aspects of human nature can sometimes rear their head. However, I would say it does allow the, the Christian conception of human nature, and also I would say where social scientists increasingly are, does allow for more sort of a gradual change, an evolution rather than a revolution in human behavior and in political behavior, such that you can very, very slowly over time, see the accumulation of positive changes. And so part of it means taking a critical but not destructive attitude toward tradition and toward societies that exist. Look for tradition as a way that preserves what is richest and best in the old, that preserves the mechanisms by which the more destructive elements of human nature can be changed and channeled, and very cautiously test whether certain aspects of those traditions have either outlived their usefulness or have come to serve a counterproductive purpose, because sometimes you can see simple consolidation of power for the sake of consolidation of power that gets sort of baptized by tradition. So it's not that that never happens. But we want to be very cautious and very careful in thinking through those issues. One way that you might look at this from a Christian perspective is a famous quote by a man named G.K. Chesterton, who was a a Christian apologist and and a, a famous Roman Catholic, and he's talking about the idea of offense. You know, the story is that uh, sort of a progressive and a conservative are are walking through the English countryside, and they come up to a fence. 
and neither of them can see any reason why it's there. And the progressive is like, this fence serves no purpose. I think we should tear it down. And the conservative looks at the progressive and says, until you tell me the purpose this fence once served, I will not let you tear it down. Because you don't necessarily always know the purpose uh, that the fence might have served and whether it's still serving it. And so that really requires us to, I would say, be careful observers and, and thoughtful observers of tradition, particularly if you're saying, I want to change something. It really helps to know why it's there in the first place. I'll give you a, a good example, and we may at some point do a separate podcast on this. I've heard a lot of people talking about the idea that we should change the Electoral College because it's unfair and it's undemocratic and so forth. Most of them are, from what I can tell, completely incapable of articulating the reason why the Electoral College existed in the first place. And spoiler alert, part of the reason for it is because it was undemocratic. It was because the idea that the majority, the mob, as they uh, thought they considered it, should make decisions for everyone. If you got 50% plus one of the vote, that you should be able to hand over power to any demagogue who could gain that, you know, 50% of the voters plus one. That was something that the founders found abhorrent. They knew that they were building a strong presidency, and so they wanted to put some fences and safeguards around it so that you couldn't have a consolidation of power by someone essentially gaining a tyranny of the majority and empowering an executive to do whatever they wanted. So, you know, how does going to a national popular vote answer that problem? And it is a real problem. We can look at populist democracies where people like Hugo Chavez, you know, people like some of the, the increasingly authoritarian populists that have gotten elected now. People, you know, Hitler, for example, was democratically elected, granted through a messed up parliamentary system. But, you know, if you're concerned about populism, right, and you think that all of these populist movements are challenging, and you think that, oh, well, I'm not worried about that here because Hillary Clinton won the popular vote, so we can get rid of it and that will curb populism. Just wait. Just wait until someone is more effective than Trump at demagoguing, because that could happen, you know, if, if that's your, your concern, if that's what you think Trump did, if that's how you think he got there. You know, somebody else could do it more effectively and get 50% plus one. And so what does that mean for the other 49% if they're people that 50% that plus one doesn't like? So, you know, one of the challenges with the idea that we should just get rid of the Electoral College because it's bad, is that we've forgotten a lot of the reasons why the founders thought that simple majoritarianism was a bad idea. And before we decide that simple majoritarianism is a good idea, we should maybe look and see whether majorities have changed that much, whether majorities' tendencies to tyrannize the minority are really as educated out of us as we think. And if not, and if you're going to say the Electoral College doesn't work, what are you going to replace it with? because you have to replace it with something. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that I, I, I'm not necessarily saying let's keep all of these institutions or keep all of these things and don't change anything. Uh, I think that's a little bit too reactionary. But what I am saying is look at why and how things arose, look at it very carefully, and then determine the consequences of that. And don't just look at intentions, look at impact. Look at what what institutions and what things were designed to do, whether they've done it effectively, whether that still needs to be done, and if you get rid of the institution, how you're going to do it, what other mechanism you're going to bring in that's going to do the same thing. And so that, I think, is how we have an approach that is really well-grounded in an accurate understanding of human nature that is less revolutionary or reactionary and more reformist.
All right, so that's going to do it for this episode of Blind Politics. Remember that you can rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. You can also find us at Facebook, Blind Politics, Instagram, Blind Politics, Twitter, Blind, P-O-L, Multi. Not sure when this one is going to air, but thank you for listening. Hope everybody's staying safe and being well. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte, signing off.